Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy B. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. This is part two of our unearthed episode for uh, where we're covering January through March of 2021, stuff that was literally and figuratively unearthed. Uh, last time we talked about some shipwrecks and some foods and beverages and some cute animals and stuff, and we've got other things this time. Yes. So it has become kind of a tradition to start part two of our two-part unearthed episodes with potpourri. That's the stuff that's interesting, but it doesn't quite fall into a category with other finds. So first, researchers from multiple universities have confirmed that indigenous people in what is now northern New Mexico took proactive steps to prevent wildfires at least as far back as the 1100s. Members of the team interviewed tribal elders at Jemez Pueblo, as well as elders from the Hopi tribe, the White Mountain Apache tribe, and Zuni Pueblo about these people's cultural and land management practices. They combined this ethnographic work with archaeological study of the area, tree ring research, and modeling. They concluded that the people of the Jemez Mountains have used a variety of methods to prevent destructive wildfires for nearly a thousand years. These have included using small, low-intensity fires to get rid of unnecessary flammable material, uh, burning flammable material for cooking and heating, so you're basically gathering a lot of what might cause a wildfire and then using it for a practical purpose, burning off cropland after the harvests were over, and then also just keeping a buffer around settlements that was completely clear of trees and brush. Plus, Hundreds of people lived in these settlements, so just the day-to-day foot traffic would keep small, burnable plants around the settlements to a minimum. The team drew a direct connection between this research and wildfire conditions in populated areas today. In the words of lead author Christopher Roos, quote, We shouldn't be asking how to avoid fire and smoke. We should ask ourselves what kind of fire and smoke do we want to coexist with. In other news, archaeologists in China have found what they believe to be a man's cosmetic cream. It's a small bronze jar found in a 2,700-year-old tomb belonging to a nobleman, and it contained a substance made of animal fat and a carbonate mud known as moon milk. It's probably used to, like, whiten the skin. This is not remotely the oldest cosmetic product ever found in China. There are cosmetic sticks dating back to at least 1450 BCE, But this is the oldest find that seems to be specifically a product for a man. An electrical crew trying to move some power lines stumbled onto a previously unknown tunnel under a homeowner's garden in Wales. And at this point, who made this tunnel and why? Still a mystery. The work crew filled what they dug back in to protect it, since it'll probably be some time before it can really be studied. This happened in the village of Tintern, which is home of Tintern Abbey, subject of a famous poem. The abbey was built between the 12th and 16th centuries, and it is not known if the tunnels have any connection to the abbey, but the tunnels aren't shown on any survey maps dating back to the 1700s. Either they were dug before that point, or someone dug them secretly and didn't make note of it. Mystery tunnels. Okay, so moving on, the Pazaric carpet is a wool carpet that was made about 400 BCE. 
And it was found in a burial mound in 1947, and it is in the collection of the Hermitage Museum. It is in astounding condition considering how old it is and the conditions it was in before being unearthed. Although one corner of this carpet is mostly missing, it is otherwise largely intact, and its colors and patterns are still very vivid. That has led to a lot of questions about how exactly it has retained so much color for so long and in the conditions that it was in for so long. And according to research published in the journal Scientific Reports, one reason may be that the wool was previously fermented, with the fermentation process allowing the pigments to penetrate deeper into the fiber. And then that would make the color more vivid and more permanent. This conclusion means that the use of fermented wool in dyeing is about 2,000 years older than was previously known. A man in New Haven, Connecticut, bought a blue and white 15th century Ming Dynasty bowl at a yard sale for 35 bucks. <laughs> uh, it was sold through auction house Sotheby's, which kept the seller's name confidential. But that turnover was, uh, that was a good flip. Its selling price was $721,800. So that was a yard sale find that turned out to be something extremely valuable. Uh, Something that it seems like the buyer suspected at the time. One of the accounts that I read was like, he did not negotiate this $35 for a bowl at a yard sale at all. He just went ahead and got it and then started asking questions with appraisers (laughs) pretty much right away. Uh, So now we have a couple of objects that have a little bit of similarity to that, but they surprised people by turning out to be ancient artifacts, something that came as a bit of a shock. first. About 20 years ago, somebody noticed a large and conveniently shaped rock in a garden rockery, and they had it taken to their stable to use as a step when mounting their horse. It's a nice, squared-off, right step for getting up on a horse if you need a little help with that. Uh, At least 10 years later, they noticed that there was a laurel wreath carved into the side of it. How many horses were mounted off of this rock before anyone realized. (laughs) This turned out to be a nearly 2,000-year-old slab that probably came from Greece or Western Asia. In addition to the laurel wreath, it bears a Greek inscription that translates to the people and the young men honor Demetrios, son of Metrodoros, the son of Lucios. Auction house Woolley and Wallace asked for public help in figuring out exactly how this piece got to the UK. It's likely that a wealthy person on a grand tour of the continent brought it back into the area sometime in the 18th or 19th century. That was very common. We talked about that some in our episode on the Parthenon marbles. Uh, But most of the original houses in the area have since been demolished or destroyed by fire, and it is really not clear which of these households specifically might have, you know, been home to the person who originally brought it in. This piece was expected to be auctioned off in February, which is why it caught my eye for this episode of Unearthed, but that auction has been postponed until June. I love this next one. Uh, Similarly, in 2013, a couple of people at a signing for the book Porphyry were leafing through the book, and they were shocked to discover a picture of their friend Helen's coffee table. It turned out the table was topped with a mosaic that had originally decorated a ship of the Roman Emperor Caligula, and their friend Helen was antiquities dealer Helen Fiorati, who had bought the mosaic in Italy more than 40 years prior. Yeah, the 
the author of the book in interviews talked about like hearing these women excitedly being like, that's Helen's table. And he was like, I'm, I'm sorry, who's Helen? <laughs> what are, are you what talking are, about? I, does it just look similar to Helen's table? What are you? Yeah. <laughs> so uh, Fiorati maintained that she had bought this mosaic in good faith, had been told simply that it had belonged to an aristocratic family, no knowledge that it was archaeologically significant in any way. But after this discovery that it was really something that had belonged to Caligula, it was seized and turned over to the Italian consulate. It was repatriated to Italy and put on temporary display at a museum. And then in March, it was moved to the Museo delle Navi Romani, which houses other artifacts from Caligula's ships. In other news on that front, Italy's Ministry of Cultural Heritage, Cultural Activities, and Tourism plans to open an underground gallery dedicated to items from Caligula's Pleasure Gardens that is expected to open this spring. Yeah, I don't know the exact date or whether... um, The timeline is shifting? Yeah, sadly, again, resurging uh, COVID cases has put a damper on it. Uh, We will stop, though, for a quick sponsor break before we get up to some other things. Next up, uh, we have a category that is always a favorite of mine when I work on these episodes, and that is the books and letters. Israeli archaeologists have announced the discovery of Dead Sea Scroll fragments that are at least 1,900 years old. These parchment fragments contain text from the books of Zechariah and Nahum, written in Greek, and they were found in a cave where they are believed to have been hidden during the Bar Kokhba revolt. These fragments were discovered during a project in Israel and the occupied West Bank, basically a sweep of hundreds of caves with the hope of protecting items of archaeological and historical significance from plundering and other damage. I'm sure there will be more analysis into these fragments uh, later on. In other news... And another thing that's just a favorite of mine that somehow we've not talked about much on the show, research published in the English Historical Review has explored the question of why and how the Doomsday Book was made. The Doomsday Book was Britain's earliest public record, and it was compiled at the request of King William I, a.k.a. William the Conqueror, in the 11th century. So basically, after the Norman conquest of England, William wanted a survey of the land that he was now ruling, in part so he could figure out how much to charge in taxes. So in 1086, he sent government inspectors all over England to gather information about things like who lived there and on what property and how much livestock they had. And surveyors asked each question three times. Once to find out the answer for when Edward the Confessor was still king of England, once to find out how that had changed when William became king, and once to find out how things actually stood in 1086 when the survey was being conducted. The resulting books that came from all this uh, interrogation include The Little Doomsday, which details Essex, Norfolk, and Suffolk, and The Great Doomsday, which details the rest of England with the exception of London, Winchester, County Durham, and Northumberland. There are other books compiled from this same data as well, including The Exxon Doomsday, which is one of the earlier drafts and covers Wiltshire, Dorset, Somerset, Devon, and Cornwall. This research that we are talking about right now focused on the Exxon Doomsday. 
In the words of lead author Dr. Stephen Baxter, professor of medieval history at the University of Oxford, quote, This new research, based on the earliest surviving doomsday manuscript, shows the survey was compiled remarkably quickly and then used like a modern database, where data is entered in one format and can be extracted in other formats for specific purposes. Uh, it's really an amazing achievement, considering that they were keeping all of this data without the help of things like computers. <laughs> right. Someone there is a master DBA <laughs> yeah, of of pre-automated uh, calculation. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a lot of someones. There were a lot of people that were involved in actually making books out of this data. This particular paper followed another project called The Conqueror's Commissioners Unlocking the Doomsday Survey of Southwestern England. Baxter was a co-investigator on this earlier project, under lead investigator Julia Crick, this project created a complete digital facsimile of the Exxon Doomsday, including identifying which scribe wrote which part of the manuscript, which I find incredibly cool. It also reiterates earlier research by other people, including Carol Symes at the University of Chicago. Uh, she suggested that while this data-gathering step with the, the Doomsday book was famously completed pretty quickly, the process of actually compiling that data into the final doomsday books, which survived today, that took a lot more time and in some cases was really chaotic. I feel like that could be said about uh, writing an episode of Stuff You Missed in History Class. Sure. <laughs> Sometimes you can get all your information pretty quickly, but then making sense of all of it. <laughs> well, and with the with the Exxon dooms, Doomsday made more complicated by the fact that there were almost two dozen scribes working on it. What if we had two dozen scribes who worked on our episodes? No, no. We'd lose our minds. Uh... <laughs> Research published in the journal Heritage Science has examined English deeds from the early modern period. Specifically, they looked at what type of animal skin the deeds were written on. Using peptide mass fingerprinting, they determined that the preferred skin for this purpose was sheep. That was true for more than 90% of the deeds that they looked at. Sheepskin would have been incredibly commonplace and pretty cheap, thanks to the prevalence of British sheep farming. But the authors concluded that there was probably another reason for this apparent preference for sheepskin as well. Because of sheepskin's physical structure and fat content, it separates into layers pretty easily, especially when you scrape it. That makes it really difficult to alter the text on something without leaving a really obvious mark. So, like, if you wanted to fudge some information on your deed, trying to scrape off that old text would just leave a really obvious mark on it. So this use of sheepskin may have been as much about fraud prevention as it was about there just being a lot of sheepskin around. That's something the authors backed up with some historical references to sheepskin dating back as early as the 12th century. People basically advising others on how to write official documents and saying, yeah, use sheepskin because you can tell if somebody's messed with it. But the preference for sheepskin for these documents lasted for centuries after the last of these written references of, like, mentioning that particular point. So, okay, this last entry in Books and Letters isn't exactly a book, but it is a text. In medieval and early modern Europe, pregnancy and giving birth were inherently incredibly risky, and people used a variety of objects to try to offer themselves and their loved ones some kind of protection, things like amulets, relics, staves, and birthing girdles. In England, the church even kept these items on hand to loan out to people during pregnancy and delivery. 
recently published research in Royal Society Open Science looks specifically at birthing girdles. Some of these were made from animal skin or silk or some other fabric, and they were very clearly meant to be worn. But others were made from parchment that was covered in symbols and prayers that were meant to be touched or kissed or rubbed as part of like a religious veneration. And it hasn't always been clear whether these were just kind of stored as a parchment roll, whether they were also meant to be worn on a person's body. The team examined one particular scroll from the Wellcome Collection, which was covered in images and writing, much of which was very heavily worn. And they found evidence of human proteins that suggest that it was indeed worn during pregnancy. They also found evidence of proteins that are found in honey, milk, and specific plants that are referenced in medieval medical books about treatments during pregnancy and childbirth. Although all of this suggests that this was worn as some kind of belt or girdle, it's not clear exactly how it was worn. Like, they don't know exactly how it might have been wrapped and tied. Yeah, there was an illustration in this paper that had, like, three potential (laughs) configurations to have this on a person's body. You fold it into a hat. (laughs) (laughs) Next up, we have a couple of finds that are related to music and art. First... I love this one. A large snail shell found in Marsoulis Cave in the Pyrenees 80 years ago is now believed to be the oldest known wind instrument of its type. Based on radiocarbon dating, it's 18,000 years old. The tip of the shell is broken off, and that's something that researchers don't believe to have been accidental because it's like the break is the strongest part of the shell. And then the opposite end has evidence of it being intentionally cut and perforated. There's also evidence that hematite was used as a red pigment on the shell for decorative purposes. It seems that this shell used to have a mouthpiece. There is a brownish residue around the inside of the tip, which appears to have been some kind of resin that would have held the mouthpiece in place. There are also other shell horns that have been discovered that have some kind of mouthpiece still intact. And here's what I think is the best sentence from the press release on this. Quote, To confirm the hypothesis that this conch was used to produce sounds, scientists enlisted the help of a horn player who managed to produce three sounds close to the notes C, C C-sharp, and D. We will uh, share a link where people can hear that on our social media. (laughs) Next up, when Edvard Munch's famous work, The Scream, was on display in Copenhagen in 1905, people noticed that there was faint writing in the top left corner of the canvas. Translated from Norwegian, it read, could only have been painted by a madman. Since then, it was generally believed that a member of the public had defaced the painting with this graffiti, But curators at the National Museum in Oslo have now studied the writing using infrared photography, which made the handwriting a lot easier to see. And they determined that Munch wrote it himself, probably after it was exhibited publicly in 1895. Some of the commentary about that exhibition was really negative, including people speculating that Munch was mentally ill. And he was just particularly bothered by this because he had a history of mental illness in his family. I kind of love that it's him having his, working through his chagrin over the the reviews. 
Uh, Moving on, restoration on Pompeii's mosaic of Alexander the Great defeating Persian King Darius at the Battle of Issus started at the end of January. This is a multi-month project that's estimated to be completed in July. It's being managed by Italy's Central Restoration Institute, the University of Molise Unimol, and the Center for Research on Archaeometry and Conservation Science. This mosaic is known as the Alexander Mosaic, and it was originally a floor mosaic at the House of the Fawn in Pompeii. It was unearthed during an excavation there in 1831. We're going to get to some repatriations in just a sec, but first we're going to pause for a sponsor break. We have several repatriations to talk about this time around. In various previous episodes and installments of Unearthed, we have talked about the Benin Bronzes. These are thousands of items that were looted from the Kingdom of Benin in what's now Nigeria during a punitive expedition by the British in 1897. And although some institutions, including the British Museum, have insisted that they will be retaining these bronzes that are in their collections, others have started working on repatriating them. In March, the University of Aberdeen announced that it will return a bronze depicting the King of Benin, which has been in its collection since 1957. And authorities in Berlin have also started negotiating the return of hundreds of bronzes currently being held at the Ethnological Museum. It'll be weeks or possibly even months before these pieces are actually returned. There's a whole process going along with this. But... Because it involves so many pieces, this German effort in particular may put pressure on other institutions that have so far said they intended to keep the bronzes. In March, the FBI announced the repatriation of a stele that had been on loan to the Dallas Museum of Art. That stele had been looted from a temple in Nepal in the 1980s and had been loaned to the museum by a private collector who bought it at auction in the 1990s. Law enforcement and the museum began looking at the statue's provenance after tweets by Aaron L. Thompson, who is on Twitter as at ArtCrimeProf, about the statue being stolen. The stele was handed over at Nepal's embassy in Washington, D.C. Next up, in our most recent year-end unearthed, we talked about a recommendation issued by the Dutch Council for Culture that called for Dutch museums to return items that were taken from their countries of origin during the Dutch colonial era if there was reasonable certainty that these items had been taken by force. In January, the Netherlands approved a centralized mechanism for repatriating such looted objects. There is also a 4.5 million euro project in the works, which is a joint effort among several museums and a university, which will develop practical guidance for the museums that are holding these objects. Five PhD candidates, five postdoctorate researchers, and two provenance researchers are expected to work on this effort over the span of four years. In March, officials in the U.S. returned 277 pre-Columbian art objects to the Mexican consulate in Nogales, Arizona. Customs and Border Patrol had confiscated most of these objects in October of 2012. There were two Mexican citizens who had tried to bring them across the border. The rest had been housed at Arizona's Chandler Museum, and the museum had reported them to Homeland Security Investigations in 2013. It is really not clear why these repatriations just happened in 2021, considering 
that those confiscations and investigations started in 2012 and 2013. There's there's just no information included about yeah, why it it's just, dragged out. Just sort of skips over that part. <laughs> uh, possibly there's a reason, but I could not find it. Uh, lastly, for our repatriations... In January, Harvard University announced the Peabody Museum of Archaeology and Ethnology had the remains of at least 15 people of African descent who may have been alive while slavery was practiced in the U.S. in its collections. The Peabody Museum has come up on several episodes of our show before, including in our recent episode on Julio Teo and our 2015 interview about the Harvard Indian School, which we replayed as a Saturday classic in 2020. This announcement in January prompted the Association on American Indian Affairs to send a letter to the university president, alleging that Harvard is in violation of the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act. You'll see that as N-A-G-P-R-A, NAGPRA. Criticisms included that the museum has failed to repatriate requested items in a timely manner and that the museum has cataloged its collection in a way that makes the repatriation process harder. The letter also alleged that the museum had failed to consult with tribes during an inventory of its collection that took place in 2000. In response, the museum announced that it plans to adjust its repatriation policies, and there's a lot more information about this that I think is really valuable for people to read for themselves, including the full text of the Association on American Indian Affairs open letter to the museum, and all that can be found at www.indian-affairs.org slash harvard.html. And now for everyone's favorite exhumations. On March 30th, the Spanish government approved a fund of 665,000 euros, that's roughly $780,000, to exhume graves at the Valley of the Fallen. We have talked about these graves in our previous episode on the exhumation of the remains of Francisco Franco. At least 30,000 people are buried at the Valley of the Fallen, and in many cases, their bodies were moved from other burial sites without consulting with their families. This is part of ongoing work to identify the remains of people who were killed during the Spanish Civil War and the years that followed, many of whom were buried in mass graves. In other news, a plan to relocate part of the remains of the venerable Cornelia Connolly has been abandoned after a public outcry. Connolly was a nun who was born in Philadelphia and later moved to the UK, where she established the Society of the Holy Child Jesus in 1846. She died in Mayfield, East Sussex, England in 1879. Her remains had actually already been moved once from her convent to the chapel at Mayfield School. That happened in 1935. This proposal to move some of her remains to Philadelphia was connected to an effort to have her named as a saint. But hundreds of people submitted formal objections to the plan, and more than 1,500 signed an online petition against it. The Society of the Holy Child Jesus ultimately decided to withdraw its proposal to have her remains moved. Next, the Mayo County Council in Ireland has called on the government to pass a legislative bill that would clear the way for the exhumation of remains at the two-mother and baby home. That home operated from 1925 to 1961. The mother and baby home has been in the news repeatedly since 2014, and we discussed it on our previous installment of Unearthed in 2018, out-of-wedlock pregnancies were incredibly stigmatized, so people were sent to this home, often against their will, to give birth in secret. 
As many as 800 children died while the home was in operation, and this exhumation could allow their remains to be identified and returned to families. The Sisters of Bon Secours issued an apology in January that read in part, quote, we failed to respect the inherent dignity of the women and children who came to the home. And another exhumation that also connects to other episodes of our show Officials in Oklahoma hope to start an exhumation of a mass grave connected to the 1921 Tulsa massacre on June 1st of this year, and that would align with the massacre's 100th anniversary. The site to be exhumed was identified at Oak Lawn Cemetery in October, and at the time, they found evidence of 12 burials there. Funeral home records document 18 Black men being buried there, but it's possible that this mass grave contains the bodies of as many as 30 people. There are still a lot of details to work out with this. A licensed funeral director has to oversee the work, which requires a formal plan submitted to the Oklahoma State Department of Health. And although it's possible that any remains that are found may be reinterred at Oaklawn Cemetery, this would likely be temporary to give the Physical Investigation Committee time to decide on an appropriate, permanent resting place for them. Yeah, there were obvious concerns about the idea that they may go through this exhumation, try to learn more about these people, and then, like, rebury them in the same cemetery where they had been buried in a mass grave earlier. Um, right. So that's, the idea is that this would just be while, uh, while they're trying to find a, a better final resting place. Uh, in our last exhumation this time, the International Committee of the Red Cross has announced a plan to exhume and identify the remains of Argentine soldiers who were killed during the 1982 Falklands War and are now buried in the Falkland Islands. In 2017 and 2018, the Red Cross undertook a similar mission that resulted in the exhumations of 122 Argentine soldiers, 115 of whom were identified through DNA testing. There are still 236 Argentine soldiers buried on East Falkland. And as a final note, as we wrap up this installment of Unearthed, the vial used to administer the first Pfizer-BioNTech COVID-19 vaccine in the U.S. has been entered into the collection of the Smithsonian, along with a vaccination card and scrubs belonging to Sandra Lindsay, who was the first person in the U.S. to receive the vaccine. Lindsay immigrated to the U.S. from Jamaica about 30 years ago, and she received the vaccine while working as an intensive care nurse and director of critical care nursing at Long Island Jewish Medical Center. Dr. Michelle Chester administered Lindsay's first dose of the vaccine on December 14, 2020, and it was live-streamed during a news conference. Dr. Anthony Fauci, director of the Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases at the National Institutes of Health, has donated his personal 3D model of the COVID-19 virus to the Smithsonian as well. That model was made with a 3D printer at the National Institutes of Health, and Fauci used it as a visual aid when explaining the virus and its spike proteins. It's not as much of an unearthed as a thing that's, you know, now historical Capturing object. history, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Have you captured some good uh, listener mail for this round? I do. It is from Kirsten. And Kirsten says, Hi, Holly and Tracy. I was very happy to hear your episode on the Rum Rebellion. I've always thought it was a fascinating part of Australian history, and I actually suggested as a topic to you a few years ago. So I'm glad you got to it, even if Ian got the credit. Ha <laughs> ha. Uh, it's totally possible Kirsten is one of the many people who sent an email that made me go, did we do that already? When we, in fact, had not. 
This email goes on to say, I thought you may be interested to know that a descendant of William Bly by the name of Anna Bly became the first female premier of Queensland in 2007 and held the position until 2012. Unlike William, she did not face a coup and was not known for verbal abuse. I love your podcast and hope you continue to cover the odd bit of Australian history. Um, Kristen included some suggestions for topics and then said, keep safe over there in the U.S. Yeah, I have some envy about Australia's (laughs) COVID response. Uh, So thanks. Thanks, Kristen. Thanks for this. I had no idea um, about this connection. I didn't, I had obviously not really heard of Anna Bly before because I don't live in Australia, uh, but did not know that William Bly had descendants who had then Um, in more modern times become part of the government in Australia. So thank you so much for this note. Uh, Thanks to everyone who sends us email. If you would like to send us email, we're at historypodcast at iheartradio.com. We're all over social media at Missed in History, and that's where you'll find our Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, and Instagram. And you can subscribe to our show on the iHeartRadio app and Apple Podcasts and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.